reason that this is so important to, to us as a church is that we're convinced that God wants, to, God wants to return the mission of the church back to this one thing. You know, and I've been, I've been listening in my spare time, I've been listening to a podcast from Christianity Today um, that sort of is speaking into this and has, it, it's talking about a, a church called Mars Hill um, in Seattle, Pastor Mark Driscoll, sort of the story of the rise and fall of, of that church. It's a fascinating look um, at, at church culture and America and leadership and pastors and all those kind of things. Kind of heartbreaking, but it's a, it's a fascinating story. So one of those episodes talks about this rise of the seeker-sensitive church. How many of you were attending church in the, in the sort of 80s and 90s? You know what I'm talking about. You know, Willow Hill was the, or not Willow Hill, that's, that's where we live. Uh, Willow Creek was the big church in Chicago, and, and, um, and, and Bill Heibel sort of pioneered this approach to church growth that was focusing on the needs of the unchurched. So the, this whole church growth movement in the early, in the, in the 80s and the 90s were ad- sort of about addressing the felt needs of the unchurched. So they would have, you know, music that would really appeal. And sort of at the height of all of that, you know, the musicians would sort of even begin to bring in some secular songs to kind of help, you know, hook the attention and the imagination of the unchurched. And they would have great practical sermon series, you know, like, like uh, five steps to a, to a healthy, happy marriage or, you know, three keys to financial freedom. And there's nothing wrong with those because we've talked about doing a finance series. We're going to do one of those, you know. And, of course, God does want us to have... Um, healthy marriages, and the church should and could speak into the felt needs of people. But in, in this period of time in the church, it was just, that was the driving motivation, is how do we appeal to the needs and the hearts and the minds of the unchurch? And we begin to craft our whole culture of our church around that. And churches would often begin to avoid phrases like, um, you know, sin, avoid phrases like salvation. Instead of a a Christian, you would become a Christ follower. You know, instead of sin, it would be, you know, know, uh, whatever, mistakes or or, or things like that, you know. Instead of salvation, instead of of salvation, it would be your your sort of your, your faith journey or your commitment to Jesus and these kind of things. And the whole, the, the idea, of course, is just, you know, our audience is this world out here that we need to appeal to. And there's, there's a degree where that's okay because we are called as the church to be missional. Matthew 28, 18, we're called to go into the world, to make disciples. We're called to engage the world in the lost. But I believe that something has been, something has been lost in that process of becoming so seeker-sensitive that we've forgotten that our primary calling as a church is to host the presence of God. We're not meant to be seeker sensitive. We're meant to be sort of solely driven to, 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 to bring the presence of God here on earth to host that. And then the overflow of that, of course, is, is many of those other things. So we felt from the days of our, from the very days of our conception as a church, that this was our calling. We are going to be about pursuing the presence at all costs. And we've made some intentional decisions to do that. We have sort of uncapped uh, sort of the, 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 the normal rigid one-hour time slot for churches, you know. And we said, no, let's, let's give ourselves more time. We've, we've moved away from this formulaic expression of worship where we have, let's do three songs and a, and a you know, offering and this and this. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we still don't have 
some patterns we do. If you're, if you're here long enough, you can kind of see that we have a pattern, a way of doing things. But we're also very careful not to get locked into that rigidly. Um, and we, we begin to pray and begin to ask the Lord, what does it look like for your presence to be here? So this has been in our DNA from the very beginning. We're still discovering this. We're still discovering what it means to be a presence-driven church. And this is part of our, part of our, our one of our core teachings is, is this series here. So we're going to jump in this, uh, jump in, um, jump in now. Uh, we're called to be a worshiping family that hosts the Holy Spirit of God. That's actually in our, in our, in our expanded mission statement. Biblically speaking, hosting the presence begins in the book of Exodus. Flip there to Exodus chapter 40. I want to give you, you've got four, four fill in the blanks. I want to give those to you as we teach. Here's the number one. In the Old Testament, God's presence was physically represented. And I meant to put these fill in the blanks up on the screen, and I totally forgot to do that. I should have done that, Megan, when I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. I should have, maybe that's, what the, that's why the Lord woke me up. I'll say it again. In the Old Testament, here's number one. In the Old Testament, God's presence was physically represented. So the, the, the people of Israel for 400 years have been in slavery to, the, to, 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 to Egypt. God had called in Genesis 12, God had called a man named Abram up. He raised Abram up and out of Abram's family, he created this people of God. Um, and, and, and sort of through some sovereign, you know, providence, they ended up in, 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 uh, in captivity in the land of Egypt. God delivers them out, ten, all the 10 plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. They make their way into the desert. They've been delivered. And here's, here's something that, that, that we, we kind of miss. They haven't been just delivered just to be delivered. They've been delivered for a purpose. Ten plagues were for a purpose. Crossing of the Red Sea was for a purpose. It wasn't just for freedom. Why have you been set free? You've not just been set free just so you can go on and live your way. Otherwise, the book of Exodus could have ended right there as soon as they crossed in the Red Sea. Hey, here we go. But they've been delivered for something else. And let me read here in Exodus 40. So as they make their way out, they they're, 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 they're go to Sinai. They, Moses goes up to the mountain. You know, he delivers this law to them. He speaks to Moses. He gives them the law. He says, if you're going to be my people, here's how we're going to have a relationship. This is a relationship of grace. I've saved you by grace. You're saved by grace. It's, you, know, you didn't earn it. But now that we're in relationship together, let me show you how you can walk this out. Let me tell you about my holy character. Let me tell you how, do you, how do you, how do you love me with your heart? How do you love others? How do you be different from the world? And he gives them these laws. Moses writes them down. You know, he brings them down. He gives them to the people. And the people say, yes, we'll do all of this stuff. And of course, they have a bump in the road, you know. They, they, they get discouraged and Moses is gone. So what do they do? They have to build this golden statue because they think they need to see a God. Why? Because inside of the human heart is a desire for God to be in their midst. So they need, we need to see something. God is way up here. But no, 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 that's, that's not good enough. We, you know, we've been in Egypt for all these years. We're used to seeing God in, in the form of a bull, in the form of a scarab beetle, in the, form of a, in the form of a frog. We're used to the God of the Nile. We need something that we can see. So Aaron, Moses is gone. He's been up on the mountain for all this time. He's probably dead by now. 
Aaron, you're going to be our leader. Make us a God that is in the midst of us. And Moses says, okay, or Aaron says, okay, Aaron is Moses' brother. He says, okay, bring me all your jewels, all your gold, all your silver, all your stuff. You know, bring me your earrings. And he throws them into this fire and, you know, he crafts this, this image of this strong bull. Just like the one that they remember from the days of Egypt. And Aaron says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the people begin to celebrate and revelry and orgy and all these other kind of things. In the meantime, Moses is very much alive and well. And he comes down and he brings the wrath of God down. But God does not give up on them because God has a plan in the book of Exodus. He doesn't strike them dead as he wanted to. Moses intercedes and appeals to God and says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to do this, God. You didn't bring us out here to strike us dead. I know what they did, but you're not going to do this. And he begins, and God says, okay, well, let me give you some instructions. Here's the next step. You have my law. You have my instructions on how to live. Now it's time for arts and crafts. Who of you guys remember arts and crafts from, from, college, from camp and summer camp where you would make a little bracelet or whatever else? You know, our kids do crafts here. God says it's time for arts and crafts. Get some fabric. Get some stones. Get some wood. Get some goat skin. It's time to make something. And God gives them the, the step-by-step instructions on how to build something. It's something that they've not seen before. It has four sides. It has poles. It has this tent inside, this, this sort of this courtyard. And they make this thing meticulously. And Moses says, okay, we're going to bring in the best of our builders and the best of our artists. By the way, you know the very first, very first person in the, old, in the Bible who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Anybody know who that was? It wasn't Moses. According to the Bible, it was a craftsman named Bazalel, an artist, an artist. And God says, I'm going to have you make something beautiful but it's not going to be like the bulls of Egypt. And so he has them craft this tabernacle or this tent. And inside is going to be this, you know, special place of meeting God. And inside that place of meeting God, God says, okay, even inside, I want you to make now, we're going to make a box. And it's going to be yay wide and yay long. And you're going to put something on top of it. You're going to carve these sort of angels, these, these, these seraphim whose wings are touching and they're bowing down. And you know, Moses is making all, okay, I'm going to make a box short, see why, the long, and angels. And you're going to put rings on the four corners. Okay, rings on the four corners. And you're going to sort of slide these poles in. Okay, slide poles in. And Moses, you are never to touch the box. Moses says, okay, never touch the box. God, why can't we touch the box? going to learn that the box represents the very presence of God himself. It was holy. It was set apart. Don't even let, don't even let your, your sanitized hands touch it. I don't care how much you wash your hands, Moses. Don't you even lay a finger on my presence. 
Well, God, if you're so concerned that we're going to sort of soil your prayer, why don't, why don't you just get the box? Why don't you just throw the box away? Why don't you just get rid of it? Because Moses, I want to be in the middle of my people. So let's go to, uh, to, 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 is he, to what book are we in? My goodness. <laughs> Exodus 40. So all through these chapters, they, they create the robes for the priests. There's a whole lot of detail in here. Don't, don't, get, don't get buried in the detail and don't miss the point of this. They set up the tabernacle. They dress the priest. Here's what happens. They, uh, Moses and Aaron. Aaron is now the, the, the high priest. His sons are now the high priest. They cleanse themselves. They wash whenever they go into the tent of meeting. So Moses sets up the courtyard around the tabernacle. Listen to this. This is in chapter 40, verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, and he put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard, and so Moses finished the work. Y'all say it's done. He did it. He followed the instructions. They've got a tabernacle. They've got the holy place where there's the ark of the presence, and they've got an altar where they can sacrifice and give worship to God. Here's what I want you to notice. Verse 34 now, hold on. It, it could have ended at 33, but it didn't. Verse 34 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord, say, glory of the Lord, come on, filled the tabernacle. Y'all don't miss it in these seven words. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Get a picture of this. Come on. They've seen fire and smoke on the mountain for a long time now. And they've been building this and they're not sure what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, what was up there is now down here. The glory that was up there has now descended, and it's so powerful, and it's so real, and it's so manifest that Moses said, I can't even get close. I can't even go in. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, God? What are you doing? How, how can you take that, that which was up there that was so real and so present and so deadly and so dangerous, and you brought it down in the midst of this sinful people? I can't even go in. Because this is the point of Exodus from the very beginning. God has brought them out because he wants to put them in a place and put himself right in the middle so that they can be his people and he can be their God. And the glory comes down and the glory dwells there. So in the Old Testament... God's presence was physically represented. So we're going to fast forward now a whole lot of time. As the nation grows, they carry the little tabernacle around with them. They set it up again. They carry the ark with them. They set it up again. They make their way into the promised land. They tear down the walls of Joshua, and the little ark of the presence goes with them. You know, whenever the ark goes, the enemies fall down. Wherever the ark goes, they bring victory. And they set up the tent. They set up their altar, and they, they worship, and they say, so year after year after year, this is their life. They understand. They orient their entire camp around the, 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 the tabernacle. You got tribes that are camped out this way to the right, tribes camped out this way. And it's sort of almost like making a big cross. It's really kind of cool. But wherever they go, the presence is in the center of the people. 
And the glory follows them, or rather they follow the glory wherever it goes. They fast forward, fast forward hundreds of years. A guy named King David is now on the throne. Oh man, that's such a, we're going to do a study on David one day soon. King David is on the throne. He has seen God do so many incredible things. What started out as a sad little nomadic group of nobodies in the desert is now the most powerful nation in the Middle East. He's got an army and a wealth that no one can touch. And David has a heart after God. And one day he's looking around at this incredible palace that he's built. And he says, God, this isn't right. Well, David, what do you mean? Well, God, it's not fair that I should have this. Are you kidding me? This is like 20,000 square feet, an indoor swimming pool and all kind of stuff, you know? God, I really want to build you a house. All you've got is this little, you know, sad tabernacle thing. Can I really build you a house? And God says, it's kind of ironic, David. What do you mean, God? Well, it's ironic that you want to build me a house when in actuality I'm going to build you a house. God, understand, I've got a house. No, 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 David. I want to build you a house, a nation, a dynasty that will never end. Oh. But David, if you want to build me a house, fine. I don't need it, but if it'll make you feel better, go for it. And so Solomon, his son, does that. Nearly 500 years after this time of Exodus, Solomon has completed not a fabric temple, or tabernacle rather, but an incredible stone temple that sits on the highest place in the city of David in Jerusalem. It is the envy of the world made out of white limestone surrounded by a wall around the city. And they say that in the dead of night when the fires are all around the temple. The entire edifice is just gleaming white as far as the eye can see. Go to 1 Kings chapter 6. So he builds the temple here. The temple is completed and they bring the ark inside. 1 Kings chapter 6, let's read verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The writer goes on to give the dimensions. It's remarkable. Every sort of every measurement, every kind of stone what it was outlined with. Skip to verse 11 of this same chapter. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all of my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. God promises favor. He promises protection. He promises his presence. Those are all conditional, of course. Conditional upon their faithfulness, their being true to the covenant law. Which kind of brings us to point number two, and it's this. It's placement, it being the temple, tabernacle both. It's placement, design, and function reflected God's absolute holiness. The design, the placement, and the function of the temple actually served a purpose to reflect God's absolute holiness. You guys have heard of something called the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, sort of a a Catholic monk, nailed his complaints upon the church door of Wittenberg, Germany, and it sparked a revolution. And one of the the results of the Protestant Reformation was... um, sort of this, uh, this rejection of all of the, the high Gothic art of the Middle Ages. And even in, during some of the more violent encounters between the Protestants and, and the Catholics, many of these stained glass windows would be smashed. Many of these uh, you know, Christian cathedrals would be burned to the ground. Many of these you know, great icons of the, early, of the early church would be destroyed. And the Protestants sort of in, 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 in reaction to that would go to such an austere sort of design aesthetic. Their churches would be just so simple, just wood and, 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 and slats of pews. And they would have nothing but a simple sort of a simple wooden podium up here with a, with a Bible literally chained to the pulpit. As if to say nothing else matters but the proclamation of the word. And there's some benefit in that. You know, I think obviously the Protestant Reformation, God used it to help bring a lot of correction. But there was something, I think, that was lost. And there's, there was a purpose behind the huge, tall, Gothic cathedrals. There's something, there's a purpose behind the stained glasses. There's a purpose behind the, the design of the Notre Dame in Paris. It's meant to reflect the incredible beauty and majesty and holiness of God. And so the temple was crafted of priceless materials. The holy place alone was made of 23 tons of gold. Y'all do the math on that. What is it? What is an ounce of gold worth now? Some thousands of dollars. 20 Three tons of gold just for the holy place. And the place that the temple was located in the center of the people, I mentioned that. And then in Jerusalem, it's located on the highest point. Why? It's meant to reflect that God is center and he is high and he is sovereign above all things. And it was absolutely sacred. Absolutely, it was guarded night and day. 
to enter into the temple, you had to be, you had to sacrifice upon sacrifice to atone for you. You can't just walk in, you know? It's like, we're, it's so different now. Now he's like, okay, come on in. Whoever wants to, come on in. This is, this is the sanctuary. You know, we call this a sanctuary. You know what sanctuary means? It means holy place. This is a holy place. And we can just come in sort of with anything, any way we want to. Anybody can. We live into the sort of the, the grace of the new covenant, but in this time, the holy place was holy. You can't just walk in. And even inside, even if you made it in after your sacrifices and your ablutions and all of your cleansing, even inside, there is the most holy place, and only one person can enter that, and then even then, only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. The presence of God was so holy and so set up. 1 Kings chapter 8, flip a couple chapters over there. They bring the ark into the temple. Verse 10 says this, when the priest withdrew, by the way, they, they bring this in there. They bring the ark of the covenant into its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. They put it, uh, they place it inside of there. Verse 10, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, you guys remember the cloud? The cloud filled the temple of the Lord. This is so awesome. Just like 480 years ago, God says, I will honor my covenant. Where I am held in esteem, I will bring my glory down and rest there. And so the cloud fills the temple. This is amazing, verse 11. And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. You guys, what is going on? Do you notice that in both times, the glory of the God, is, it just disrupts everything that they had planned? I want to see that. Just like Moses couldn't go into the tent of meeting, the priest came and do their thing. Imagine if you walk in here. Imagine if you walk in this room and the glory of God is so, is so manifest. It's like a literal cloud in here. We can't even see what we're doing. Our worship team can't even see what we're doing up here. What would that be like for the presence of God to be so rich that we're just, we don't know what to do. We're just, we, we, we can't do everything that we have planned. But this is what God wants to do. He, he says, the priest cannot perform their service because of the cloud and the glory of the Lord fills his temple. Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. It's placement, design, and function reflect his absolute holiness. Here's a third point. It's neglect and defilement. Revealed corrupted hearts. His, it's neglect and defilement. Revealed corrupted hearts. What a high day this must have been for Solomon and all the people. This is the spark of revival. This is what every church leader dreams of. 
when the glory of God is so there. You've got this beautiful temple. You've got the throngs of the singers, the throngs of the musicians. You've got the sacrifices happening. You've got tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people as far as the eye can see, and the glory of God is coming down. And you just know that this is going to be the start of, of, of centuries of blessing, centuries of God's favor, that the renown of the Lord is only going to be even increasing as, 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 as the years go on. But it doesn't take very long for things to change. You see, inside of the heart of Solomon and everyone there was a seed of brokenness and disdain for the holy love of God. And as much as they would try, they can't get rid of this bent towards self and destruction. And not one generation later, and the unified kingdom is already starting to disintegrate. And not one generation later, and this promise of total devotion to God falls by the wayside. And the people of Israel begin to say, you know, we love our temple, but have you seen the newest temple to Baal? I mean, it's really cool. Have you seen the Assyrians and what they're doing with their Asherah poles? I mean, that's way cooler than what we're doing. Their music is a lot better. The children's program rocks. Second Chronicles 24 epitomizes the highlight of this several hundred years later. It's a, down, it's a downhill spiral towards absolute anarchy and godlessness. Not just in the average, everyday person, but in the hearts of the kings and the hearts of the leaders. Second Chronicle 24 describes offerings made to Baal inside the temple of God. Inside the temple of God where his glory dwells. Sacrifices to pagan deities inside the holy place. King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26. Nineteen says this Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. Who was ordained to carry incense in the presence of the Lord? Was it the king? This was a priestly function. But Uzziah says, oh, no, no, no. I'm the king. I can do what I want. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. 
whole other story. Manasseh, another king, sets up pagan altars in the temple. Second Chronicles 33 says this. But here's a verse I want to put up on the screen. It's in Jeremiah 23 because there's simply too many, there's too many illustrations to read to you to describe this neglect and defilement, this contempt for God's covenant love in the history of Israel. There's simply too many of them. There's too many wicked kings to outline. Jeremiah 23, verse 10. The land is full of adulterers, says Jeremiah. He's prophesying destruction to the nation. He says the land is full of adulterers because of the curse. The land lies parched and the pastures in the wilderness are withered. The prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness. It's neglect and defilement reveal corrupted hearts. First, uh, here's the fourth point on your sheet. It's destruction, and it's, of course, is the temple. It's destruction. That's your line, destruction. Hinted that something greater was needed. It's destruction. Hinted that something greater was needed. After Solomon, there is a, what we call a divided kingdom. David had unified all these tribes into one kingdom. Solomon took over the reins of that. It wasn't very long before his sons were in rebellion against one another, and the kingdom was divided into the, the kingdom of, of, of Israel in the north with 10 of the tribes, uh, and the kingdom of Judah in the south with, which, with what would later be two of those tribes, a little bit of crossover there, some, the north and the south. Eventually, the nation of Israel, of course, with all of their lines of corrupt kings, would fall to Assyria. Capital, uh, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. It would be sacked and destroyed, the people taken off into captivity. And soon, the nation of Judah, all that was left, would be taken away as well. Let's go to Second Chronicles, chapter 36, the very end of Second Chronicles. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. Listen to that. He had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no enemy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, is the nation of Judah now. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, verse 18, he carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. Verse 19, they set fire to God's temple. And broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. 
All this happens in 586 BC. Centuries of idolatry. The Lord finally says, I've had enough. I've had enough. And his glory and his presence have long left. But soon, the symbol of his presence lies in a heap of smoke and ruin. And the truth is, is the covenant isn't working. They had an agreement. They had a covenant. God promised to bless them and to show them favor and to always be with them. And the people promised, yes, God, if you do this, then we will honor your ways. We will keep your word. We will be faithful and true to you. We will, we will serve you, the one true God only. We will not go after these other ones. That was their covenant. But it failed miserably. They couldn't do it. They can't, they can't keep faithfulness. And God in his sovereignty allows them soon, 70 years later, to come back. Okay, I want you to rebuild this symbol of my presence. And they're wrestling with something new now. See, before they were wrestling with this temptation that said, the symbol of God's presence is here. We can live any way we want. We're doing our due diligence. We're offering our little goats. We're offering our rams. We're saying our little prayers. We're doing all of our stuff. God's blessing us because look at his temple. We must be chosen. And all of a sudden, the symbol is gone and destroyed. And God says, come back and rebuild the temple. And in their minds and in their hearts, they're thinking, why bother, God? Why bother? We had it up before, and we weren't blessed then. We were doing all of this stuff, and you didn't take care of us then. Why even bother now? And they didn't get it. They didn't get it that the symbol was meant to reflect an inner reality in their hearts. But it's important to God to say, no, there must be something that represents my presence on earth so that you can understand who I am and I am set apart. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the wall. Rebuild the altar. And so they shake their heads, thoroughly confused, some of them. The ones who are listening to the prophets totally get it. Even after the temple is rebuilt, though, things aren't the same. It's never the same. It never feels the way that it felt in the days of Exodus 40. Never feels the same way like it did. I would tell the stories of Solomon. Oh. The book of Haggai recalls this account when they're coming back and they're rebuilding the temple. And, and, and as they're rebuilding this, there's, there's this sound of weeping. And they look around, who is weeping? And they look around, it's the old men and the old women. They're weeping. Because they remember the old days when the glory used to be there. And all they see is ashes. And God makes a promise to Haggai, to the people. He says, don't you worry. The day's going to come when the greater glory is going to be so much greater than what you remember. And they look around and say, how can that be? How can that be? We have no one here to work. This temple is in ruins. And God says, because I have a secret. So the symbol is restored, but the problem remains. 
How can a holy God indwell a sinful people? Boy, I ask that all the time. God, how can you, how can your glory be here? God, do you know me? Do you know the week I've had? Do you know, do you know what you're in? How, how in the world, God, do we ask your glory to fill this place, to fill this church? See, we have, we have the fortune of seeing all of this history that we've just unpacked. We, we see it all with sort of with 2,000 years of clarity. We know what's coming. And in and, and their time, they didn't know it was coming. They just had hopelessness and despair. And they said, God, I'm sorry, we can't do it. We want to honor you. We want to be in covenant faithfulness. We don't know how to do it. We want you to be in our presence. We want you to be here. They knew that more was needed. Ezekiel did too. Ezekiel, man, he's another one of these great prophets. He's the one who's sitting there saying, don't you see what this is about? It's not just about stone and blood. It's about something deeper. And he begins to prophesy to them. He's, he's in this. He's in the midst of them during their time of, of, of heartache and, 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 and sort of um, destruction and, and, and exile. But he writes these words, Ezekiel 36, prophesying hope, verse 24. He's prophesying from the heart of God to them. He says, for I will take you out of the nations, says God. Where are they now? They're in Babylon. God says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Hold on, God, wait a minute. Let me get this straight, God. All this time, you've given us a law and you've asked us to keep it. And we can't do it. Is that right, God? Yeah, that's right. But if I understand what you're saying, God, is that you are going to cause me to keep your law. That's right, I am. Why didn't you do that in the beginning, God? Well, because you weren't ready for it. You had a whole lot of unlearning that you had to do. You thought it was all about the tabernacle and the ark and the stone. That's not where my presence is meant to dwell. In fact, if it stayed out there, your heart would always be stone. Well, that's where we are. Hmm. 
And in the season to come, they would realize just what that meant. That the glory was not meant to stay in that box, but was meant to come out and to be here in every person. But there's some things that stood in the way of that. Sacrifice had to be made. One final one. God says, don't put away the altar just yet. We got one left that we got to do. And then we'll be done. Amen. All right. Hey, stand up. Stand up. I can't wait to unpack more of this next week. This is one of my favorite things. Oh, God is so good, you guys. I still love, though, that he gives us sacred spaces. I do. I love that. God still wants there to be symbols of his holiness. Places where his holiness and his glory can dwell. Worship team, come on up. I want to see that. I want to see the glory of God be so disruptive here. I do. I'm going to see it one day. One day it's going to be just so powerful that I'm just going to crawl underneath that pew over there and just not get up. Don't bother me. Just kick me with a little gentle kick to make sure I'm still alive and just leave me alone. That's all I want to see. Because we're made to host the presence of God. 